Get autographed copies of New York Times bestselling author Cynthia Bryan's books at www.starstyleradio.com. Get inspired and motivated to be your best self with Be The Star You Are, 99 Gifts, and Be The Star You Are for Teens. Buy cases at a deep discount to give away as gifts and premiums. Visit www.starstyleradio.com or call 925-377-STAR. 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 Do you have a plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, hello, Power Partners, and welcome to our Power Hour. You are listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, brought to you by Be the Star You Are charity, and coming to you live on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel, and I am your host, Cynthia Bryan. Well, today's show, we have a a somber show, but very interesting. We're going to be talking about the Holocaust Hitler, and we have a very special guest, Colonel Charles Causey, who is the author of The Lion and the Lamb, a very absorbing tale of how war-torn people cling to that power of hope and faith. He spent three years researching the history to bring this very true Holocaust story of the suffering of the innocents and, you know, the morally absent leaders of the Third Reich. So we will talk to him in segment uh, two and three. And um, coming right up, I'm going to give you just a little bit of history about the Holocaust so that we all know what it is that uh, that we are talking about. But first, a miracle moment. And of course, it's only appropriate to have this miracle moment be brought to you by Be The Star You Are Charity. And it is a quote from Anne Frank. If I look up into the heavens, I think that it'll be all right, that this cruelty too will end and that peace and tranquility will return again. And for those of you who have been to Amsterdam and visited the Anne Frank house, I feel that you will have your heartstrings torn. I know that when I went through it, even though I've studied it for many years and studied, you know, been a, um, a student of history, going through that, I, I really couldn't keep the tears back. It was so uh, traumatic because it's very hard to understand how something in this could happen. But what does the word Holocaust mean? It comes actually from the Greek words holos, which means whole and kostos, which means burned. And it was historically used to describe a sacrificial offering burned on an altar. But 
Since 1945, the word has definitely taken on a new and a very horrific meaning. That is the mass murder of some 6 million European Jews, as well as members of many other persecuted groups, such as gypsies, homosexuals, and people with disabilities, by the German Nazi regime during the Second World War. And to the anti-Semitic Nazi leader Adolf Hitler, Jews were considered to be an inferior race, an alien threat to the German racial purity and community. And after years of Nazi rule in Germany, during which Jews were consistently persecuted, Hitler's final solution, now known as the Holocaust, came to fruition under the cover of World War II, with mass killing centers constructed in the concentration camps of occupied Poland. But before the Holocaust, there was also anti-Semitism, and that, um, you know, it began literally um, uh, years ago, actually, in the ancient world, though use of the term itself dates only to the 1870s, anti-Semitism. There is evidence that the hostility towards Jews, that Jews went back as far as the Roman authorities who destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and forced Jews to live, leave Palestine. Now, the Enlightenment during the 17th and 18th centuries emphasized religious toleration. And in the 19th century, we know that Napoleon and other European rulers enacted legislation that ended that long-standing restriction on Jews. But anti-Semitic feeling endured and in many cases took on a racial character rather than a religious one. And even now in the 21st century, the legacy of the Holocaust injures, Swiss government and banking institutions have in recent years finally acknowledged their complicity with the Nazis and established funds to aid Holocaust survivors and other victims of human right abuses of genocide and other catastrophes. And it's about time. Well, the roots of Hitler's particularly terrible brand of anti-Semitism are truly unclear. He was born in Austria in 1889. He served in the German army during World War I. And like many anti-Semites in Germany, he blamed the Jews for the country's defeat in, the ni- in 1918, which was World War I. And soon after the war ended, Hitler joined the National German Workers' Party, which became the National Socialist German Workers' Party. And it was known to uh, English speakers as the Nazis. And while he was imprisoned for treason for his role in, um, in the Beer Hall Putsch of 1923, Hitler wrote the memoir and that propaganda Mein Kampf, which means my struggle, in which he predicted a general European war that was going to result in the extermination of the Jewish race in Germany. And he was absolutely obsessed with the idea of the superiority of a very pure German race, which he called Aryan, A-R-Y-A-N. And he uh, talked about this need for Liebenstrom or living space, and he wanted living space for the Aryan race to expand. Now, in the decade after he was released from prison, Hitler took advantage of the weakness of his rivals to enhance his party status, and he rose from absolute obscurity to power. On January 20th, 1933, he was named Chancellor of Germany, and after President Paul von Hindenburg's death in 1934, Hitler anointed himself which became German supreme ruler now there's been a lot of talk was Hitler Jewish and I know that we all hear this there was a recent DNA study by Belgian researchers 
that suggests that the Fuhrer may have been more closely related to ethnic groups that he considered subhuman than to his Aryan compatriots. In the decades since his death, the Nazi leader's ancestry has been a subject of um, speculation and obviously intense controversy. And some have suggested that his father, Alwal, who was born to an onward woman named Maria Schlickengruber, was the illegitimate, illegitimate child of Leopold Frankenberger, who was a young Jewish man whose family employed her as a maid. Now, she subsequently married Johann George Heidler, later spelled Hitler, whose surname um, Adolf adopted, and others have claimed that Alwa's biological father was also the grandfather of Hitler's mother, Clara Posey, making Adolf the product of an incestuous marriage, and I could certainly buy that. He was crazy enough to have, uh, you know, this, this crazy blood in him. But to unravel that mystery of the Führer's roots, the Belgium journalist Jean-Paul Mulder teamed up with Mark Wiemern, a historian who's written extensively about Hitler and his ancestors. And the two of them collected saliva samples from 39 of the infamous dictator's living relatives, including a great-nephew who actually lives in New York and goes by the name of Alexander Stewart Houston, and an Austrian cousin identified only as Norbert. But tests were then conducted to reveal the sample's principal Haplogroups, which are sets of chromosomes that geneticists use to define specific populations. And although the idea may seem preposterous, the question does seem to stem from the remote possibility that his grandfather was Jewish. Now, um, in 1933, the London Daily Mirror published a picture of a gravestone in a Jewish cemetery in Bucharest inscribed with Hebrew characters and the name Adolf Hitler. But it is now known that this Bucharest Hitler could not have been the Nazi leader's grandfather. At the time, though, the picture sufficiently worried Hitler that he had the Nazi law defining Jewishness written to exclude Jesus Christ and himself. Can you believe that? He had the law written to exclude himself from any extermination. Now, in 2010, the British paper, the Daily Telegraph, reported the study that I was just talking about, where these saliva samples were collected from 39 of Hitler's known relatives to test their DNA origins. And though it's inconclusive, um, that it is possible that he did have Jewish origin. The paper reported that the chromosome called haplogroup E1B1B1 showed up in Hitler's samples, is rare in Western Europe, and is most commonly found in the Berbers of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, as well as in Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews. And it also accounts for approximately 18 to 20% of Ashkenazi um, uh, Jews and 8.6% to 30% of Sephardic Y chromosomes, and it appears to be one of the major founding lineages of the Jewish population. Now, it's scientific by nature, but of course, it is uh, inconclusive. And of other, you know, there's been allegations of of Jewish ancestry, like levied against the Iranian leader, uh, Mahoud, um, I forgot how, I don't know how to say his name, actually, Amahoud. Hinejad, who regularly claims that the Holocaust never even happened. So it's very interesting. So it's possible that Hitler had both 
uh, African and Jewish um, chromosomes or ancestry, both of which he hated. So then now the Nazi revolution in Germany um, it became was like 1933 to 1939, and there were twin goals of racial purity and spatial expansion. And that was the core of Hitler's worldview. And from 1933 onward, they would combine to form this terrible driving force behind his foreign and domestic policy. Now, at first, the Nazis reserved their harshest persecution for political opponents, such as communists or social, uh, social democrats. The first official concentration camp opened at Dachau, which is near Munich, in uh, March of 1933, and the first prisoners there were communists. Like the network of concentration camps that followed becoming killing grounds of the Holocaust, it was under the control of Heinrich Himmler. He was the head of the elite Nazi guard, and I know... Um, Charles Causey will talk more about him. And also he was uh, the head of the SS, and he later became chief of the German police. Now, the German concentration camps um, held about 27,000 people in what they called protective custody. And huge Nazi rallies and symbolic acts such as public burnings of books by Jews and communists and liberals and foreigners helped drive home the desired message of party strength. Now, in 1933, Jews in Germany numbered around 525,000, or only 1% of the total German population. But during the next six years, Nazis undertook uh, this Aryanization of Germany, dismissing all non-Aryans from civil service, liquidating Jewish-owned businesses, stripping Jewish lawyers and doctors of their clients. And under the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, Anyone with three or four Jewish grandparents was considered a Jew, while those with two Jewish grandparents were designated as half-breeds. And under the Nuremberg Laws, Jews became routine targets for stigmatization and persecution. And of course, we know it culminated in Kristallnacht on that night of broken glass in 1938 when German synagogues were burned and windows and shops in Jewish shops were smashed. A hundred Jews were killed, thousands more arrested. And then between 33 and 39, hundreds of thousands of Jews who were able to leave Germany did while those who remained lived in a constant state of uncertainty and fear. Now, the beginning of the war in 1939, September, the German army army occupied the western half of Poland. German police forced tens of thousands of Polish Jews from their homes and into ghettos. They gave their confiscated properties to ethnic Germans, non-Jews outside Germany, who identified as Germans. Germans from the Reich or uh, Polish Gentiles and surrounded by high walls and barbed wire, the Jewish ghettos in Poland functioned like captive city-states governed by Jewish councils. Then there was widespread, uh, you know, no, uh, there was unemployment, poverty, hunger, overpopulation, and of course the ghettos were a terrible breeding ground for disease such as typhus. Now, meanwhile, in the fall of 1939, Nazi officials selected around 70,000 Germans institutionalized for mental illness or disabilities to be gassed to death in the so-called euthanasia program. And after prominent German religious leaders protested, Hitler put an end to the program in August of 41, though the killings of the disabled continued in secrecy. And by 1945, some 275,000 people who were deemed handicapped from all over Europe 
had been killed. And it seems that clear that the euthanasia program functioned as a pilot for the Holocaust. And of course, 1940, we start towards the final solution. And we're going to go to break. And when we come back from break, we're going to have with us the author of The Lion and the Lamb, Colonel Charles Causey, who's going to take it from here and talk to us about Hitler, his final solution, uh, Albert Speer, his second in command, and the very, very kind and wonderful uh, Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy from Holland and how the two differed. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I'm Cynthia Bryan. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Be the star you are. The star you us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world, lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR, 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 and visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan, www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is calling Well, thank you so much for staying with me here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I am Cynthia Bryan, and I bring you the pioneers on the planet who enhance your life and help you be a better person and change for the better and see the good in life. I'm not so sure that today we're having a party, but we're definitely having a power hour as we discuss the Holocaust, Hitler, and the book by uh, Colonel Charles Causey called The Lion and the Lamb. Charles Causey is with us today. He was a guest on Express Yourself Teen Radio, and this book is the true story of the powerful Nazi leader and the Dutch resistant worker. It is absolutely riveting book, and I'm just so delighted to have Charles with us today. Welcome, Charles, to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you for having me on your show, and I'm excited and uh, feel honored to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm really, I, I really wanted to bring you on the show because 
I just felt that it's so important to get out the message, you know, that hatred just cannot win and that somehow we have to find a way to all get uh, get along. And I and there are so many um, people, well, hopefully not so many, but there are people out there who believe that the Holocaust and the, the horrible hatred and killing that went on in the 30s and 40s against the Jewish population is, as well as you know, gypsies, political prisoners, and people with disabilities didn't happen. And I think it's important that we get the truth out. Before we start on your book, The Lion and the Lamb, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your background, because you are a colonel, and you actually served in Iraq. You've got a bronze medal, and you are, as well as that, you are a um, a chaplain, so tell us a little bit about perhaps how working in this armed forces um, might have shaped your vision of what you wanted to write about. Yes, ma'am. I, I'd be glad to share a little bit. As an Army chaplain, we um, our motto is for God and country, and we nurture the living, um, care for the wounded, and honor the fallen. And that's um, the role that I had in Iraq when I was there for a year uh, during the surge in 2006 and 2007. I was with an aviation brigade and I was, I belonged to the commander. I I was his chaplain, but we had in our unit, unfortunately, we had um, sometimes helicopters that would crash. And when a helicopter crashes um, in battle, it, it kills usually everyone on board. So there might be between four and eight people that die at one time. And we would, um, so I went to very uh, many memorial ceremonies where we would have to honor these brave uh, men and women who perished in battle. And one of the striking things is to learn, we would learn about them and the days before they died and what was on their mind. And um, it was just so wonderful how um, so many of the great soldiers that we have, um, their family, their faith, their freedoms were on their mind days before they died. Um, and I was able to participate in helping honor the fallen there. Um, I came back to the States and my wife and I were commissioned to lead a marriage ministry for veterans for a year. And we traveled around the country and we helped uh, veterans and their wives and their families to deal with those uh, traumatic stress issues and conflicts mm-hmm. in marriage and, and, and try to help the healing after the war because there's many scars in war, both seen and unseen. Absolutely. And uh, the chaplain's role is to help with that. So That must have been very empowering work that you were able to do because you could probably, you know, see a huge difference when you were able to communicate with the husbands, wives, and families who had undergone so much for our country. And I think this is the sad thing is that so many of us who have not been in any of our armed services don't realize the sacrifices that you all make. So I thank you very much for what you have done. Well, I want to get to your book, The The Lion and the Lamb, because what you've done in this book is you've taken basically two main characters who just seem to be absolutely completely opposites. Albert Speer, who was Hitler's uh, number two man, 
And then Corey um, Ten Boom, who was just this very, very uh, religious, I would say, spiritual woman who cared about people. And she and her family tried to uh, save as many uh, Jews as possible when all of the when the Germans invaded Holland and started rounding them up. So what I know that you had said before that you had read uh, uh, quite a bit about um, Corey. What made you choose Albert? Well, um, one of the reasons is that there was a lot of great primary source material. Albert Speer himself had written biographies about his life. He wrote a fantastic called A Secret Diary of Nuremberg, which he smuggled out um, in little pieces of paper um, through a Dutch um, nurse. And um, he sometimes had to smuggle out pieces of paper in his underwear. (laughs) And we just... Um, I wow. found so many interesting facts about his life, his friendship with Hitler. So many people don't know about the seven men who served in Spandau because when the war was over, people wanted to move on and forget that yet these men were in Spandau prison for decades afterwards, um, you, carrying out the sentences of their crimes. I think we should and, jump to that because oh, I, no, I, I would like to jump, jump to that before we even talk about it because I really did not know that they served out their crimes because it was interesting to me how many of Hitler's uh, understudies, let's say, they took a, a cyanide or, you know, they committed suicide as opposed to going up for judgment and how arrogant they were at the trials. It seemed Albert Speer might have been the only one that was willing to take some kind of a responsibility for what he did. That's why he stood out, Cynthia. He actually said, he he called evil for what it was. He said, we can't hide this. When they showed him video clips of people being burned alive in buildings and mounds of corpses, he just, he took ownership of that. He said, we can't, we can't color this. We can't explain it. The Nuremberg trials uh, itself was so unique in history because for the first time, a world court was held in order to try men against the universal ethic of right and wrong. And uh, one of the charges brought against Spear was crimes against humanity. And um, the thought is, who can judge about this unless there's a universal code for all nations to live by? And Spear embraced that. He embraced what the Nuremberg trial was all about. And he said that the government leaders, if they had won the war, they would have taken credit for everything. But now that they lost the war, they were all eager not to take credit for anything. For anything. Well, you know, the what I found very interesting about um, what happened in Spando and then all the different the different players in this is throughout the book you kept talking about the architect, you know, the architect. And I kept thinking you were talking about Albert Speer as the architect until you start you realize that Himmler is the one who actually divined these horrible horrible ways to die in these death camps and the artifacts that he came that he um, that he cherished and kept in his what his um, uh, what was she a mistress's attic that he was so proud of uh, you wonder how can people just think they're obeying orders and carry out such horrendous things 
Well, it's a great question. Um, C.S. Lewis writes a whole book about this, uh, The Problem of Evil. And um, I guess that, um, you know, there was, a, there was a case, I think it's called the Stanford um, I was, thank you, was, I was going to bring it up. I was going to ask you about it. It was <laughs> called the Stanford Prison Experiment uh, that was done in 1976. It was supposed to last two weeks. It lasted six days, right? Just a few and, days. In fact, they yeah. said they should have shut it down after two days because yes. people had already switched and become so the guards were so cruel and malicious so cruel. And the prisoners yes in so case hurting. our yeah. listeners don't know what we're talking about what happened it was a stanford experiment that happened under professor philip zimbardo and what he did is he recruited graduate students i mean undergraduate students to play guards or prisoners and they held it in a dorm and they pretended it was a prison and the guards were told they were given instructions to stay within, you know, normal behavioral bounds. But what mm-hmm. happened with immediately is they turned sadistic. They denied food, water, sleep. They sprayed the prisoners with fire extinguishers. Extinguishers. They stripped them naked. They were so abusive so quickly that his girlfriend at the time, who actually ended up being his wife wanted to see what was going on. And as soon as she saw it, she said, shut it down and shut it down now. And it was shut down within six days. And I guess what the what that study showed is that what we go to our, our worst element, even though we were good people, because all of these students, they were just normal people. And I guess yes, it's... Ma'am. I, I think I think it, it goes back to scripture in a way. I look at things through the lens of faith, and I think scripture says many times that all have sinned and fallen short. And um, though we can do good deeds and help other people in our life, there there really is kind of an an a bent in us that um, wants to, and we see this in our children all the time. They just do not want to do the right thing. It's just not an aid in us. Um, yes. and I think it goes back to generations before us. So. Well, we think of St. Peter, right? He, he denied Christ three times. He didn't even, he, he said, I don't know the man, right? So Right, um, and I think what's so important is that these things were recorded and that we remember them, such as a Holocaust memorial. We think of the Goebbels family and their children, the six children, 12 to four yeah. years old. And, and what happened to them was so astonishing. It was astonishing. so evil that if it wasn't oh. recorded in history, People would not believe that a, a father and mother could poison their six They're, beautiful children, including four-year-old Heidi. And a um, little darling, I mean, I guess me chills because you actually write uh, quite a bit about Heidi and how, how beloved she was throughout, you know, with all the different people that were hiding in the bunker and how the mom combed their hair, put ribbons in their hair, gave them hot milk with strychnine. Was it strychnine? Uh, no, cyanide, right? Cyanide, yeah. something. Yes. One of those. And killed all six children. Now, that to me is something that the Germans did that is very interesting um, and, of course, all, also leads to the downfall and the authenticity is they kept incredible records of everything. So everything was detailed. And I know I've been to both Dachau and I've been to Auschwitz. And I had a very humbling experience at Auschwitz. But to see rooms and rooms of combs and other rooms of hair Mm -hmm. and teeth. And, you know, to me, the brutality 
that went on, I, despite, you know, reading about the Stanford, um, this Stanford prison experiment and the other one that was done in 1961, you know, um, that which was at Yale University, the Stanley Milgram experiment, uh, how people, you just don't know what people are going to do because everybody wants to survive and we can't really trust what our gut is going to do. However, with that being said, your um, protagonists in your book who are true people, both Corey and her sister Betsy, when they were faced with, uh, you know, annihilation and the worst of the worst, they rose to the top. So do you have any hypotheses of what it is that can help us to, you know, be a better person? What helps us rise when we are faced with uh, personal harm and harm to our family? I do. I first want to say that, you know, when you, you talk about Betsy Timboom, which was Corey's older sister, who is a little bit more mature spiritually than her and, and helped her. You're contrasting her and Albert Speer and some of the henchmen. And the reason I did that was because I believe the contrast builds intrigue. You get a glimpse of some of the contours of their personalities that you might have otherwise missed. And I think with Betsy and her interactions with Corey, now Corey herself was a Christian and very spiritual and tried to be loving and forgiving, but you realize a contrast even between their two lives. Betsy, I think, and this goes to answer your question, I think she embraced... There's a verse, First uh, Peter one eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. It seemed like no matter what the Ravensbrook guards did to Betsy, they could not take her joy from her. She no. had this inexpressible joy that could not be shaken. And you know, I think that's what got that, her through. There was a there was a scene in your book that just I won't forget is when they were put in the concentration camp and they're forced into these barracks with all of these other women and they're totally filthy and they get there and they realize it's crawling with fleas and (laughs) and oh my that's such a great great scene and Corey is oh my god I'm just getting eaten alive by fleas and Betsy was thank god for the fleas bless the bless the fleas (laughs) you know I was thinking are you crazy? I mean, I was thinking. Well, Corey told her that. Me. She thought she was crazy, too. She thought her sister had finally lost it. And lost she, it. <laughs> she thought her sister had finally lost it. And then they come to find out that they're not getting beaten as much because the guards are afraid to come in because of the fleas. And Betsy because says, you fleas. see. It's so are, amazing. Yeah. Right? So it was such a it's fascinating. A, it was, and that was a true story. And I do think uh, Fritz Neustraten, the a Corey Ten Boom Museum director. He reviewed my manuscript. He endorsed it. He he read through every sentence, and he approved that the things that I was writing about were absolutely true. And and that story is is very true. And it's just a remarkable witness to human endurance and and trying to find the good and thank God for everything in your life, even when it's bad. Right. Um, uh, you think that of James saying, "Consider it no matter how we look at it." Trial. And Fritz Fritz actually wrote a beautiful foreword. For your uh, for your book now, uh, Charles, if you will hold on, we're going to have you uh, stay for our second segment. If you have the time, please. We're going to take a very short break, and we'll be right back with Charles Causey. His book is The Lion and the Lamb. You can during the break visit causeybooks.com. This is a book you want to pick up. You want to read every word. Um, 
it's it is chilling and at the same time it gives you faith and hope that there are good people in the world um charles hold right on i'm cynthia bryan you're listening to star style be the star you are we'll be right back Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Be the star you are. The star you are. The annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. Bethestarur.org. Dare to care. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is calling out. Well, it's normally a party, but we're calling it just a power hour because the topic is very somber. And we really want you to take it very seriously. Our guest is Charles Causey. He is the author of The Lion and the Lamb. And he's also the author of other books. I want you to visit CauseyBooks.com. But this particular book is really about the Holocaust and the Nazi leader who was uh, Adolf Hitler, his rise to power, and a Dutch resistant worker who really had a lot of faith hope and, you know, gives me hope that there are good people in this world. So, Charles, if we could talk about some of the main characters in your book, uh, that would be fantastic because, of course, um, we have both characters that were the good people in Holland and then we have all of these German people who were just pretty horrendous. So uh, who was the most surprising to you, by the way? Well, actually, Albert Speer was because he actually uh, took ownership of the crimes. That was surprising. But I think Goring is one of the most uh, intriguing people in the book. Himmler was just pure evil. Yeah, Um, Himmler was evil. Goring seemed to me like he was, he thought he was some aristocrat that just wanted to eat well, (laughs) dress well. And he he should have been an actor. He changed his clothes how many times? It would be like (laughs) 10 times, right? He did. He he would change several times during a meal at his house. He would go and change his clothes and... and, He, he was so he was so intrigued. He would show up when he should have been in um, military uniform. He would show up in hunter's uniform, and so many times during some of the great atrocities that are you know, and from a German perspective, like D-Day or um, when they had this massive Allied air attack, Goring was not there because he was hunting in one of his forests, one of his castles, 
And uh, but he stole so much. He he stole from there were, I think, thirty something thousand homes boarded up in Paris of Jewish owners, and the trains just came every day, and they would stop at Karen Hall first, and he would decide what would stay there at his palace or at his hunting lodge, or go to Berlin to Hitler. And uh, most of the time, Hitler appreciated it, except one time he said Goring should have sent one of the gifts he kept. Goring should have sent it on to Hitler, but Goring was mostly concerned about himself. He, he was, was profiting I... from the war. He loved his places of residence, and he loved hunting and just enjoying the good life. And I was so shocked reading about Goring uh, when he gave himself the birthday par- uh, birthday party, and you chronicled how he actually sent out invitations and told people exactly what he wanted them to bring him. And they were not like, bring me a bottle of wine. It was like, you know, bring me some kind of major art piece or a sculpture, a full-size sculpture of Hitler. I mean, it, right. he really, he was the most egotistic man I think I've ever read about. Yeah, it was even worse than that. What I, I think I mentioned in the book that Albert Speer found out that he realized after uh, the last birthday party of Goring he went to that they had been deducting from everyone's paycheck a little bit every month for that whole year so they could buy things for Goring. <laughs> and Speer was just appalled. He said it was the last birthday party he was ever going to go to, even though he brought Goring by Goring's own request, a bust of Adolf Hitler that he carried in the back of his car. Right. Um, now, one other no. thing, and then, of course, um, before we move on to Speer, uh, Goring blew up Karen Hall instead of letting the Allies take it. He actually, he removed all his goods, right? And then he watched, he dynamited it or something. Um, he did, and he, he filled out, he had a caravan of goods that he, he moved down to Bavaria, um, where I guess he hoped he could keep them somehow or put them in mines, but he knew the Russians were coming and were going to take it, and he just couldn't stand the thought of others enjoying um, his his grand hunting lodge, which was truly one of the most magnificent uh, buildings in Germany at the time. You know, it, it's just, it really is appalling of the greed that he exhibited. Now, what I wanted to ask you about Spear was, you know, it didn't, I, I must say that throughout the book, it seemed that Spear was more, he was a true architect and he really wanted to keep the mm-hmm. machinations going. He wanted to keep the the um, the industry going, the, the factories going, even when Hitler said that he wanted to scorch the earth, which which uh, Speer knew would have meant giving the German people a death sentence. So anyone, because they wouldn't have food, they wouldn't have transportation, they wouldn't have water, they wouldn't have bridges, they wouldn't have roads. Do you feel from your research on Speer, that he was really aware of the atrocities that Himmler and the rest of the renegades were perpetrating upon the Jews and the gypsies and anybody that Hitler, you know, demeaned as uh, not worthy? It's a great question. In fact, that, that question haunts Albert Speer the rest of his life. What did he know? When did he know it? There was an assumption that everyone in the German high command knew everything that was that Hitler was doing in Poland. Um, not all concentration camps were extermination centers. The five extermination centers in Poland were ultra top secret, and there was only a handful of government people that knew about them, and mostly they were lackeys of Himmler, and he had his own guards that he handpicked, people that had worked in a... Um, 
the euthanasia program before the war. And those five sinners, of course, killed millions of people. Treblinka alone, they, they really believe that 900,000 people were gassed. And in most instances, it was within three to four hours of getting off the train. Mm. They were completely mm. gassed um, and killed and then disposed of. The ashes were burning. Before the Soviets got there, they turned it back into a farm. And that's why I think there might be some Holocaust deniers is that we, you don't see all of the ovens and you don't see all of the bones and the bodies and um, because the Germans, they were, I guess they were smart enough to try to cover their tracks. They couldn't with Auschwitz. The Soviets moved so fast, they were able to take over Auschwitz before it was completely destroyed, which really bugged Himmler. And he decided the other ones, it wasn't going to happen that way. But, you know, you asked earlier in the program, Cynthia, why, why was Hitler so evil or to talk yes. about Hitler? And um, it's really a tough question. And one of the themes that arises in the book and one of, what I found out about my research is that he really had an incredible personality. He loved to be around groups. He was good with children. He'd often hold them on his lap or take them on walks. He was very friendly with his dog. He seemed to care when other people were speaking to him. He would look them in the eye. In fact, Speer was jealous of the way Hitler could be around people. But at the same time, Speer said there was something missing in a normal human conscience um, that Hitler didn't have. He really felt that Hitler could be controlled by evil. It's what I called in my, um, my epilogue. I said that it's what I would consider something missing in Hitler's personhood. There was um, maybe a conscience. <laughs> Might be well, a good way to describe it. Knowing, I, I, knowing right and wrong. And you had mentioned strychnine earlier in the show. That was actually what Hitler's physician was prescribing him, not knowing that he was poisoning Hitler, which is a little bit why he was so hysterical at the end of his life. Uh, he was giving him pills, and there was strychnine in the pills. Well, I thought he was he helping Hitler, but he was hurting At least him. that's what I had um, in another book I had read that Hitler had contracted syphilis like at the turn as in the early 1900s or something. And, you know, this is before there was penicillin or any of that. And so they thought that all these treatments and it's possible that the syphilis was even going to his brain and making him even crazier. But one of the things that you talk about in The Lion and the Lamb is here is Albert Speer supposed to be his, you know, his second man in command, right? Yet he yeah. was rude to Albert when they he could, you know, one second he could be kind and this next second he could just cut you off just like that. So Hitler obviously was charismatic when he wanted to be. And then he was dogmatic and just a, a tyrant many of the other times. I was like shocked that that Ava Brahm just wanted to get married and die with him within, you know, a few hours of marrying him. Yeah, that was surprising. Spear felt so sorry uh, for Eva Braun because he felt like she was a good girl that got tied up with a horrible person. But I think that's how Hitler manipulated his staff around him. Spear wasn't always number two. At some points, he was Hitler's closest friend. At other points, he was... Um, isolated from Hitler and rejected, and Speer would br- or Hitler would bring in other people like Bormann or Goebbels or Goring to his side, and Speer felt he was on the outs. As you know, in my book, there was a back and forth, back and forth. Back and forth. Sometimes Speer was in favor, and sometimes he wasn't. Well, usually it seems that um, it, I mean Martin Bormann. You end your book by saying Bormann was never found. 
do you think he any any thoughts? Did he go to South America? Is, you know, are his grandchildren living the good life? Uh, any thoughts of what happened? <laughs> Well, I, I did write in the in, in the foot the real tiny footnotes that that most of us can't read. Um, I did put that in the late seventies they found some remains, and then they they did some testing and they, they thought it was Martin Borman. And then in the nineties, when they were able to do DNA DNA tests, they confirmed that the remains that they found from the seventies were Borman's remains. But why I left a book like that is because I, I leave the book in 1940, actually, you know, when Spear gets out in the 60s. And yes. at that point, Borman still hadn't been found, even when, when Spear left Spandau Prison. So I wanted to leave the book where it was in history, and Borman had not been found at that point. And he, his, his absence, I mean, it was very conspicuous that he wasn't there. You know, there were 24 men charged at Nuremberg who led the government, but only 21 sat in the docket. Because he was three found were guilty charged in absentia, and Borman was one of them. Yeah, Borman was one of them. But now, um, it says that, I mean, you wrote that the genetic testing was proven in 1998, and Borman's remains were cremated and his ashes scattered over the Baltic Sea in 1999. Uh, who scattered his ashes? And I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to have ashes of Borman. He seemed like a weasel. Right, and in fact, he was he was considered that um, a, a weasel and just a, a very he, he was known as the man with the hedge clippers. That's what Speer called him because he kept every man around Hitler at the same length. He mm-hmm. would backstab every person at different times so that nobody got a leg up uh, with Hitler over him. He really wanted to lead the government. He really wanted to be in charge at the end. And you know, at the end of the bunker, it was so crazy, and telegrams were going all over and. Hitler lost all of his closest allies. He felt like Goring betrayed him, Himmler betrayed him, and even Bormann, he escaped the bunker somehow. He escaped. Yeah, he wasn't in the bunker when it went. Yeah, well, it really is uh, fascinating. Now, let's just uh, transition, as we have so little time, to Corey, because she survived um, World War II, and and then she, she actually, her sister had seen this vision and told her that she was going to find this beautiful home and she was going to help people, you know, um, she was going to minister to them and she was going to help them recover from the atrocities. And interestingly enough, that all came to fruition. It was as if Betsy was her guardian angel sitting on her shoulder and helping it happen. I mean, that gave me chills when I read about that. It, it really is amazing. Um, Betsy could see, it's almost, you know, as she lived her life, um, it was almost like she had a foot in heaven anyway. And Mm -hmm. with those visions, it was almost like she could have the mind of Christ or the mind of God and be able to see the future in some way through her dreams. Um, I think in Corey's book, The Hiding Place, she calls them Betsy's three visions. And one of them was that that home, that beautiful home that Corey would take care of people after the war. And then the other is a concentration camp that they would have in Germany where they would care for people. And sure enough, Corey was asked to lead um, work by a Lutheran group to help um, German um, people that suffered in the war in Germany at that concentration camp. And when, when Betsy told Corey this, that she was going to work in a concentration camp to help people, I mean, Corey was like, are you joking? (laughs) 
I mean, that made no sense at all. You know, I mean, their life was so miserable. Now, I have a a question to ask you because I was just reading another book about Hitler and and the Holocaust. And I don't know if you came across any of this because I often wondered if you were Jewish, like so many people got out of Germany when they saw what was happening in the the mid to late 30s. And, um, you know, several hundred thousand got out. There were like 500 and something thousand in Germany before it happened. And then uh, uh, some got out and then they immigrated to wherever. But how, unless your neighbor was, um, you know, reporting you or family was reporting you, if you looked Aryan, if you were blonde or blue eyes or, you know, you looked German in any way, why was it that people were so willing to just go along with what Hitler was saying? Do you think that they, that they didn't believe that these concentration camps existed, that he really wasn't going to exterminate them? Do you have any, any kind of insight on that? I mean, this always, I just keep thinking that I would just like I would just deny it. I know it'd be a, a lie, but it would be a white lie. Right. It's a great question. In my study, I, I studied um, some of the um, extermination centers. There's a great book um, by Gitta Serini on Treblinka. It's called Into That Darkness, and she goes into that some. And what she brings out is that people that were traveling on those trains and going, they were told that we're going to bring you to farms, we're resettling. In fact, that was part of Hitler's vision in Mein Kampf, was to take Poland and white Russia so that he could um, colonize it and settle people there. So it was part of the lie that he was telling Jews, you're going to go to this new country, you're going to settle there, um, and so bring everything that you have. Bring your silver, your gold, your banknotes. Right. And they so did. They brought their furs. They brought all their possessions. And it was part of the looting that went on at the um, extermination centers. But I really believe these people felt that they were going to um, they were going to go to a place where they would work on a farm at a, at a regular concentration camp. They felt they were going to go to a concentration camp, but they thought the extermination center. It was so atrocious to think that concept that that could be possible. How could right. people believe that that's true, that you would get off a train and undress and wait in line and then be gassed? And that, that it just, it, it can't enter the human mind. It's just, it's almost maddening to think about No, that. it is. It just seems to me that it is um, really maddening. And just one final thing. What about Adolf Eichmann, who coordinated the final solution? Um, did you find that, I just think that he was so evil too. I mean, uh, you know, Speer wrote that Hitler could be controlled by evil. One seldom recognizes the devil when he's putting his hand on your shoulder. It seemed like everyone surrounding Hitler was evil. It, it does. Um, and I, I really believe, as a person of faith, there's, there's a spirit. And it was an orchestration by the enemy, the, our great adversary, to destroy human lives, to kill hope, to bring us um, into depression about humanity and what we're all about. And um, I, I think about... Um, some of the scriptures from the Old Testament, but that, you know, I, I think in Corey's life and Betsy's life, we know that God is above all things, and he's very personal in the midst of our trials. Um, and it does give us hope to know that there's people out there like Corey and Betsy Tim Boom 
that in the midst of horrible evil, unthinkable, unspeakable evil, that they could live uh, lives of morality and care for others and risk their own lives because they knew the difference between right and wrong. And I think that's our goal as a human race is to really be wise in knowing what are good things that we can do to be humble and to be kind to others and to live well, a life with, of joy, inexpressible joy. Well, with that, I want to thank you so much, Charles, for being with us uh, with your book, The Lion and the Lamb. Visit causybooks.com. Make sure to watch the trailer, the video. It's awesome. And we just have to be so diligent that we cannot let any of this happen to us again. And as individuals, it is imperative that we have faith that we have hope, and most of all, that we love ourselves and that we can love other humans. Charles, thank you so much for being on Star Style, Be This Star You Are, and sharing your research and your love of humanity and your great book, The Lion and the Lamb. It's thank really you, been Cynthia. a joy. Pleasure thank to be you here. so much. Causeybooks.com, C-A-U-S-E-Y books.com. I'm Cynthia Bryan. I thank you so much for being with us today. Be with me here every Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, live, brought to you by Be The Star You Are Charity. If you'd like to make a donation, go to bethestarur.org. And remember that love always wins. Smiles make us happy. And until we are together next week, go out into the world and be the star you are. I'm Cynthia Bryan for Star Style, thanking you. We'll be together next week. Be the star you are, the star you are, be the star you are, you are the It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are. Be the star you are. Keep caring. Keep caring. Keep caring.